Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Things that the Squirrel Wagner model, as cool as it is, cannot deal with. And I mentioned CS free exposure, which is when you give the animal, um, well, just like it sounds, CS free exposure, you give it exposure to the, the condition stimulus before you actually start doing the experiment. And in fact, that improves learning, and one would think it actually shouldn't by the model, because it showed that's the, the it's predicting nothing. So it should get, it should actually expect less. It does exactly the opposite thing. Does that change S, maybe? And, uh, Lucas, you mentioned, you said, well, maybe it's attention instead of salience. And that's exactly what Nick McIntosh, and that was one of the articles, uh, one of the books, Conditioning and Associative Learning, that, was, that cited that paper we were looking at stuff on Google Scholar before. Um, Nick McIntosh has a, has a kind of reworked version of the Rosquilla Wagner model where he turns... S into an attentional parameter. There are other versions too, where it's not just a te- it's not just uh, that there are, uh, we have a, a attention or salience of the CS and attention or salience of the US. So two things multiplying there. Okay, that's that's another way to look at it. Because some some US's are more valuable than others, right? If you give an animal two different kinds of food, they prefer certain kinds of food over others. I can tell you right away that rats, if you give them a choice between noise pellets, those, those little um, food pellets, 45 milligram ones I've talked about, and little pieces of cheddar cheese, and Count Chocula, they prefer Count Chocula. They prefer Count Chocula. Cocoa Puffs. That article that I was mentioned about Ken Chang, it's, it's, it's rats searching for Cocoa Puffs. Right. Which is great, because Ken Chang is the most vegan, don't eat any sugar guy you'll ever meet, and he feeds rat Cocoa Puffs. It's wonderful. <laughs> um, I mentioned the Pierce Hall, Hall model only briefly, it, because it's, it's a sort of a strange model. It invi- involves the animal, co- it's sort of like Rosquilla Wagner, but it's the animal, there's a comparator in there where the animal sees what happens in the real world and compares it to what happens in its, what it has in its memory. So it's similar enough. Randy Gallistow's model, I've talked again briefly about before, and Randy's model involves um, looking at correlations. There's actually no associative part in the model whatsoever, which is kind of neat. Uh, Randy wrote this great book I've mentioned before, uh, uh, The Organization of Learning. John Pierce is the most British professor you would ever meet in your life. He looks like a Doctor Who. <laughs> he wears like um, a tweed. He looks like he literally Doctor Who. Like, first time I met him, he's got a, a tweed jacket on with the with the patches. Like I mean, what you're supposed to wear as a professor. Uh, he's got the hat, little hat, little cap, and he's got a scarf on, and it's 20 degrees out. <laughs> And he was visiting our lab and he, you know, when I was an undergrad. And uh, he comes over and he's doing, I was working on this some spacious stuff. I told you guys about it. And then my friend Gord was working on this stuff with uh, uh, hippocampus and nucleus accumbens, this physiological stuff. And he said, uh, he said to John, do you, do you, do you, do you, do you know stuff with the hippocampus? 
And John Pierce said, yes, I believe it's somewhere in the black box, isn't it? So that was a great answer, purely behavioral answer. I don't know about brains, it's a black box. Uh, he's a really cool guy. He said some really neat work, too. So like, there are other models out there, but nothing really has explained as much data as the, the squirrel white model. Okay. Questions about the model stuff? Gonna move on from it? Probably all happy about that. Ooh. Now, what kind of associations do we get? We know in first order conditioning from the squirrel experiment, we get an SS connection. Okay, we know that. With Vescorla 73, that's a pretty good paper. It, it explains that it seems like it's an SS connection. In second order conditioning, this is weird. We get an SS connection, which isn't surprising because we were explicitly pairing CS1 and CS2, but we also get an SR connection between CS2 and the response. Excuse me. It's very strange. It's reliable, but it's very strange. I've not seen anybody try to attack this in third and fourth order condition. There's also almost always other sort of uh, second order condition going on, even if you're not explicitly doing it. And because there's a, core, uh, a connection between the CS, or an association between the CS and the context. The context is what, where's the animal tested? So the experimental chamber. Right, so you've got a rat in a box. The rat's going to associate all kinds of things about the box with the CS. The way you can directly test this is give different contexts. So you can do like, I don't know, the floor is black and white checked, or the floor is just black, or the floor is just white, and you can see what different things happen. So you can actually use these kind of connections. So you're actually almost always getting a second order conditioning, even though you don't mean to. Right? And of course, there are U.S. context associations. The context itself predicts the U.S. Because when does the animal get the U.S.? Well, when it's in this experimental chamber. We tend to think, we being, you know, the scientists that are doing this kind of work, we look at it and go, okay, I'm explicitly telling the animal that CS predicts US. There's all kinds of other things you're not explicitly telling the animal that actually do exactly the same thing. And in fact, the context itself, if you put the animal in the context, in a box, and let's make the box have a checkerboard pattern floor. And then you give the animal food, or we, let's use food, it would probably be shock, but let's use food because it's nicer and it's a pretend experiment anyway. And then we try teaching the animal that a light predicts food, you're actually going to get blocking from the context that's going to block learning about the light. How do we know this? Because we change the context, the animal can learn about the light more quickly. So you're actually getting a blocking effect, came in blocking like we talked about. But the blocking CS is actually the context itself. The, 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 the experimental chamber, in this case, perhaps, like I said, a checkerboard pattern or different brightness uh, on the floor, so black versus white, etc. Which, again, shouldn't surprise us. I think usually the salience, if you want to use the score of the Wagner terms, usually the salience is so low of the context compared to a bright light or a loud noise that it's ignored. Right? 
And when you do compound stimuli, like a light and a tone together, you will get CSCS uh, associations. The animal associates, so you know, light and tone together, they'll associate light and tone. This led uh, Peter Holland. Peter's a duke. Um, he was last time I talked to him. One of the things that Peter Holland discovered is something called occasion setting. Um, an occasion setting involves, and this is usually with pigeons, and the way we test this is you get a light and the light predicts foods. The CS is light, and the US is food. And I've told you before what happens when you get a CS of a light given to a pigeon or almost any bird. For reasons that escape many of us, they start pecking at the light. Pecking at the light doesn't help them. It doesn't make the food appear any more quickly. This is not operant conditioning. This is classical conditioning. They have, there's no need for them to do anything other than stand there and wait for food. But the way they seem to pass the time is by pecking at the light. And they do it reliably. So it's not like it's something that just happens with some pigeons. In fact, and we'll talk, we might get to uh, maybe operant conditioning today. One of the ways you get pigeons to, treat, to train them about lights is you start pairing light and, and food together. And they'll start pecking at them. Um, I've done this with black-capped chickadees and dark-eyed juncos. They'll peck at, oh, oh, look, a little colored light predicts food. I better peck at it. Right? It's kind of crazy. That said, you get a, an animal like a little chick, little chicken, and you get them to uh, you present them. The, the CS is a light, but it's an LED, so it's not no warmth. And then the US is a little bit of warm air, which they like because they're babies. They start nuzzling up to this color, this, this, this like totally cold light, like it's their mom. Same response, right? Really weird. So, we do this, we get, and the nice thing is how do we show how much learning is, we can look at how many pecks there are. Beautiful, nice, something we can measure. Beautiful, we love that. And then, what we can do is this thing called occasion setting. <coughs> so, in the opera box, you have a speaker, so you might play a sound, or you might use the house light, which is a light over top that has a, it's a little bulb, okay, just like it sounds, a house light. So when that's on, so uh, when the occasion setter's on, then the CS leads to a US. When the occasion setter is not on, the CS gives you nothing. So it leads to US with a bar over top, that's the notation, which means nothing, a lack of something. Cheryl Reed Elder's uh, PhD thesis and so on, stuff like that. Almost everyone in our department, everyone in our department except Paul has some animal training. Which is good. Makes us all be able to think the same way. Properly. Um, <laughs> so, this is actually a really cool thing because this seems really complicated. But the animal learns very quickly that in this context, when the occasion is set, 
that this, that the uh, association, you know, the, the, the contingencies are active. And when the occasion is not set, the contingencies are not active. One of the neat things you can now do is see what it does when you just play the occasion setter. And actually, it has no effect whatsoever. So it only works as an occasion setter. It doesn't work as any other kind of stimulus. It doesn't cause any change in behavior. So it's actually a pretty, pretty, compli uh, pretty cognitively comp complex kind of situation. Yep. What did you say the occasion setter was? Oh, it could be a, a house light coming on. It could be a sound coming out of a speaker. Yeah, just some other stimulus. Yep. Yep. Or it could be a, a light, a different colored light coming on before this light. No, I don't think it actually really could be that. It could be another colored light coming on all the way during this. Yes, that would work. And in that case, you can then test that and see what happens. The animal has no response to it at all. No response to it at all. So they're doing something cognitively pretty complex because they're actually looking again, and we talked about this, sort of a conditional probabilities. It's very neat. It was another one of those things that's when someone discovered it, people went, now that can't work. And it, of course it works. Right. Pete Peter's great. He's a really good, smart guy. All right, and we're back. <laughs> Previously on... Okay, so occasion setting's pretty cool. And Peter Holland's a good guy. Um, now, there are cons constraints on Pavlovian conditioning. This is one of those... In the 60s, and I've talked about this before, there were a lot of changes that went on. And I don't just mean that Kennedy was assassinated and we all lost our innocence. Or the Cuban Missile Crisis. Or Martin Luther King or blah, 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 Woodstock. Everybody's high. No, people were, <laughs> people were questioning everything, right? And they started to find these really cool, cool results. And one of them, I've talked a lot about taste diversions already. One of the things that happens here is it isn't always just sickness. So... But there's something specific about sickness that's important. So the first thing is, you might say to yourself, oh, well, I guess something with a really negative consequence, like being sick and not being able to vomit because you're a rat, that's probably something you should be very good at learning, right? And that's why it takes the long delay. Well, let's compare it. I think, what else is very unpleasant? Probably intense foot shock. Let's say it's electrifying the floor. So let's give the animal a flavor. And then three hours later, just randomly shock it. Let's see if he learns anything the next day. Doesn't learn a damn thing. So it's not just a negative thing happening. It's not just a negative thing. But the animals do learn. I'm going to put this all in context in a second here. You don't have to actually, like I said, they're not vomiting. They can't vomit. And you might think, well, what about this long delay learning? What if we had 
the color of the food or the sound of the food. sound of the food? Well, we could make this food have sound. Why not? We present this food with a buzzer. Food could have a sound, I don't know. They can't associate the buzzer with sickness. But they can associate the buzzer with a shock. They're not super long delay on the shock, but they can. They can't associate flavor with a shock. Wait, now it's getting weird. So depending on the element of the food, so the color of the food, actually, uh, let's go with brightness because these are, these are rats we're talking about, that doesn't seem to associate with the, with the sickness, but with, with, with the, it's, it's, it's not the color, not the sound, it's just the flavor. But it's not just the aftertaste that the animal has in its mouth. People thought, you know, why I have long delay? It's something that still has a flavor in its mouth. No, nope. that's easy to do. You just take the rat and you give it mouthwash. <laughs> uh, you just clean its mouth out. They, they can't taste anything. Right? Or you can make them anosmic. That's pretty easy. You just a little bit of local anesthetic on their nose, they can't smell. And most of what tastes is a little on their tongue. Nothing. But they still show it. This is where it gets cool. So this all comes together here. Certain elements of the food. And that depends on the species. So there were experiments done. I wish the health of life me. I remember who did these. Using what's called bright, noisy water. Bright, noisy water is water that... It's, and it's about a flavor as well. It's uh, some flavor the animal hasn't eaten before. So you have bright, noisy water, meaning that when the animal eats this water that has a particular flavor that's not had before... And there's lights flashing and noises going on when the animal's eating. We have what we call bright, noisy water. What do we really have? We have a compound stimulus. We have flavor, sound, and color. What we can do now, though, is we can split this up. And we can say, will the animal eat, or drink in this case, water that has that flavor, water that has that sound, or water that has that color? Rats won't eat, rats can't, as I said before, rats can't associate the, the color or sound of the water with sickness, but they can the flavor. But you know what? Pigeons can't do it with taste. Pigeons do it with color and sound. Now, you may think, well, that's kind of weird, until you realize that pigeons don't have nearly the developed sense of taste. They don't have nearly the, the I guess you might call it, acuity of their, ta- of their taste sense that rats do. But pigeons are highly vis- visual animals. Pigeons are cool. They have two fovias. They got fovea on the side and fovea on the front. Um, and they recognize the way, the way they find food is, is that they, you, you must have watched pigeons eat, they'll be pecking, or other birds, they're pecking at the ground, getting food that you didn't even know was there. Right? You watch them on a beach, watch birds on a beach, they're picking stuff, what are you, just eating sand? No, they find stuff to eat. Because they're able to distinguish the, the characteristics of food from non-food. There's something the animals do. They have a, something birds have. A lot of birds call a search image. It's kind of like priming. And they do this by paying attention to certain characteristics, things like the shape, things like the color. They don't pay attention to, to flavor. They don't pay attention to flavor. So it depends on the species. So the constraints here, like evolutionary constraints, right? Because what evolution is going to do is it's going to select for... Well, it's going to work with what it has in front of it. So rats are good at tasting. 
Not so good at seeing compared to pigeons who are better at seeing than they are at tasting when it comes to food. So people started calling these things adaptive specializations of learning. Adaptive specializations of learning. So the question we would ask then is, were these things special? Is this a different kind of learning? That's the kind of question you want to ask. Is this somehow qualitatively a different sort of learning than plain old classical conditioning with, you know, I don't know, I blink or a CER or whatever? And people got really excited in the early 70s about this, late 60s, early 70s. Say, yeah, it's special, it's different. We have to take the species into account. All that kind of stuff. You know, when you think about it, you've got, well, here we go, the example before from Peter Holland's occasion setting stuff, light, t- light and food, short delay conditioning here, nice overlap. Whereas with taste aversions, or what you can call them taste aversions, you can call them food aversions, maybe, because more general, because we know that pigeons bright noisy water. So what's going to, what goes on there? Well, the overlap, there's no overlap, and the interstimulus interval can be like, is, can be measured with a calendar. It can be 24 hours. That sounds different. So people got all excited and said it was special. Um, however, maybe this is just a quantitative difference. Andrews and Braverman in 1975 came up with a pretty cool paper where they showed acquisition curves for taste aversion, for uh, CER and eye blink, I think, were the three things. And when you just change the time scales, the curves look exactly the same. So it's a quantitative difference. In other words, it's just it's, it's about number. It's not a qualitative difference. It's not a different sort of learning. Now, I kind of come down somewhere in the middle. Typically, when there are extremes and arguments, the middle is the best place to be. And I used to really be into the well. As a young graduate student, I was very excited about the idea of depth specializations, and I thought, oh, that's a depth. And then I read a paper by Al Camel where he said, it may be a quantitative difference, but snakes have little leg butts. If you look on their bodies, you can actually see the bones where their legs were a long time ago. Not those actual snakes, but back in evolutionary time. In fact, in some snakes, you can actually see them still on their bodies. They're small. They're there. So snakes have legs. So that's just a quantitative difference. Oh, bullshit. Really, it's qualitative difference. It is quantitative technically, but it really is qualitative. So I'm, that's kind of where I live. It's like, yeah, it really technically is quantitative, but they're, it's not a different kind of learning, but it's over such long delays and everything. It's sir, Is it still classical conditioning? Yep. Can we still use the scroll wagon model to look at it? Yep. But is there something special about it? Mm-hmm. And I don't think you can, those are contradictory positions. All right. Questions? Okay. Let's look at the CR itself. The CR is often like the UR. In fact, very often. We like to, we think of um, Pavlov, right? And we think of salivation. It's the classic. It's like the UR, but it's not always like the UR. First off, it's almost always weaker than the UR. 
You can get perfect, all, when you're ready to asymptote, you're still going to get less saliva to the buzzer than you do to actual meat powder. So it's almost always weaker. Sometimes it's in the opposite direction. It's what's called a preparatory CR. Okay. This, in fact, is what happens in drug tolerance. And those of you guys, I know a few of you guys have taken neuropharmacology with me. Um, and I approach that stuff from a, a really from a Pavlovian perspective, because frankly, well, Pavlovian and both from a learning perspective, um, people take drugs because they feel good, they're rewarding, right? But the tolerance stuff is almost all classical conditioning. So when you get, yeah, physiologically, you know, something else is going on, but we can look at it like classical conditioning. When you Walk into a bar, so it's the start of a joke. Psychologist walks into a bar. Your body gets ready for alcohol. Even more clearly, I was using that as an example because I think we can relate to that a lot more than when you get out your needle for your heroin. I don't, hopefully no one here can, so can... And if you did and you got over, uh, great. If you're a heroin user now and you still can come to school, you probably don't really have a drug problem. It seems to be working out okay for you. <laughs> Um, when you take out the heroin, take out the needle, your body has a preparatory response to it and gets ready for what chemically is uh, morphine, dicetamorphine. So that's drug tolerance. A lot of these drug tolerance studies, drug effects, they're preparatory responses to the animals. And the animal could be one of us. So these are called preparatory or compensatory CRs, and that's with opiates especially we get those. And a lot of times the compensatory or preparatory CR is in the peripheral nervous system. And in the central nervous system, you get a, you get a CR that's in the same direction as you are. This can explain, for example, why people get more drunk when they're in a bar than they, don't, than they get on their own, because a bar is a nice conditioned stimulus for drinking. Right? It can also explain why people can get higher with smaller amounts of, of uh, when, when, they're, when they're going to a place where they would normally shoot up, but also they have to take more. So the, the context, in fact, acts as a CS here. The context, in, in the case of someone taking heroin, can be uh, the needle on the spoon, according to you two there. Uh, it could be going to the place that people call their, they used to call them in the 70s, a shooting gallery, a place where you go to shoot up. And this led, of course, to the shooting gallery effect, and I believe I've talked about this before, about how people uh, would come home from Vietnam, uh, speaking of the 60s, and a lot of American soldiers took, um, I don't know if this, you guys know this, war really sucks. It's horrible getting shot at and killing people. Not a lot of fun, apparently. So one of the ways to get through it is to turn to drugs. A lot of soldiers do this. They have forever, by the way. The thing is, uh, 
it's easy to get heroin in Vietnam, at least it was then. Some American soldiers were taking heroin. Uh, not all of them, obviously, but many were. And then they got home, and people were very happy with the whole war effort, the whole idea of the war, et cetera, et cetera. Have trouble finding, readjusting. We all know about this. Stress, etc. So they decide to get some heroin. That's what helped them get through Vietnam. They get the same amount they used to get in Vietnam. They aren't. They aren't. They don't have the compensatory CR. The overdose. The overdose. Right. And the same thing happens with rats when you give them opiates, give them uh, morphine in different contexts of a black chamber versus a white chamber. How do we know this? Well, we don't give them overdoses and try to kill them. What we do is we test how well the analgesia works, the pain-killing aspects. You put them, you give them the paw-lick test, you put them on a hot plate, and you see how long it takes them to lick their hand, their paw, and then you take them off, obviously, you don't try to hurt them. Okay? And Daniel seems to think we're actually cooking the rats. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, it's about as warm as maybe your car would get in a warm day, like touching your car. It's, it's unpleasant. You wouldn't want to hold your hand there, but it's not going to burn you. And you see how long it is to the rat takes its paw and licks it. That work was done by Anne Marie Wall at the University of Western Ontario when I was an undergrad and she was a grad student. Very clever stuff. I wonder what Anne Marie ever did. I think she became a clinician. Hmm. So as I said, the idea might have something to do with this, the PNS or the CNS, where the act, activation is, the compensatory stuff in the peripheral nervous system, the preparatory stuff, or sorry, the um, stuff going in the same direction, <laughs> regular excitatory conditioning in the CNS. That's Jane Stewart's ideas. Uh, I believe she's retired now. She's at Concordia. Really good neuropharmacology person. Okay. Questions about that? So the CR... In our case, what we're interested in almost always is going to go in the same direction. But it doesn't have to. Okay. Physiological basis of classical conditioning. This is a great question. Who knows? Well, we know, we can see, you know, please, you these are these uh, slugs. We know that new synapses are formed in classical conditioning in aplesia. Very nice. And in fact, we get an increase in the tr- amount of transmitter released in, the, in neurons uh, sensitive to the CS, uh, which I think is very cool. It should remind you a lot of habituation, because that's what Candell found back. Uh, it's really one of the little Nobel Prize for, by the way. So, Clearly, I mean, it's obvious it's a physiological basis because it's a physiological basis to everything. But the idea of new synapses makes sense. Right? New connections. The idea of more transmitter being released, that makes some sense to me. Right? So we know that's happening at the level of an aplesion. And considering we have a very basic mechanism here, something that is shows up in every animal ever tested, classical condition. It probably works that way throughout the animal kingdom. That's not a ridiculous guess that it works something like that. Right? That said, invertebrates have never shown blocking. Nobody's been able to find blocking in inverts. I don't know why that is. No one does. 
but everything else they seem to behave just like you or I do. So what about something more complicated though, like you or I? Or like a rat or a pigeon? So I've read a lot of stuff on this, as you might guess. Um, here are five points I can come up with about physiology and condition. First of all, the CR and the UR pathways are often different in the brain. We can look at how they're produced. And while the CR and the UR are very often the same, the UR and the CR being a little weaker almost always, but that's about it. The pathways are very often different. Different parts of the brain are active. Hmm. Even though it's producing the same reaction, the same response. So it isn't something that's quite so simple as Pavlov thought. The production of the CR is usually distributed. So it isn't necessarily from one place in the brain. It's very often from all over the brain. So the production is often distributed of the CR, but not the UR. The UR, URs are, are reflexes. They're, they're ancient things that are, that, are, that are hooked up in you. They're ancient things, like, like the salivation or, or hit your knee and your leg moves. Right? Those are ancient reflexes. You're hooked up that way. So conditioning itself seems to be distributed. Now, this is pretty cool, and those of you that actually follow my Facebook feed, or actually my Twitter feed, there was something that came out just a few days ago where rats were taught to... It was a CER, basically. They, they, were, they were taught to basically fear a light. It's pretty it's the standard procedure. They get shocked. You know, just exactly like uh, you guys learned about. We've talked about a lot of this stuff. So that happened. Now, these were, oh, they might have been mice, rats or mice, can't remember. But there was, these were especially were mice, a special kind of mice of, of these genetically modified mice. No, not genetically modified. We're all going to die. I just thought I'd mock people that hate GMOs. <laughs> um, so these mice are genetically modified so that they, they had, the neurons in their hippocampus would bioluminesce. And if you know what that means, that means they glow. And they would glow when they fired. So that's already just cool. But that wasn't the point of it. That's pretty neat, though, isn't it? Glowing neurons. So you just, you, but this isn't just done to have a cool rat, cool mouse. The protein expression that happens can then be shut down with light, because that's the, the way the, the way that these things are genetically modified. I mean, it's I don't quite understand that part to be honest with you, but we can now stop the protein expression. Okay. So do you get that idea? So we got the rats, we've, we've taught them a CER. We can now see the activation in their hippocampus. Literally see it. 
But we can't really see it because we have to look inside. What we can do is because of this mutation, there's this just change in the genome, we can then shut down protein expression in that circuit with a flash of light. Okay? One of the things they found, first of all, was that what hippocampus does is when learning is happening, is that the animal is given, is you get a, a, the production of a conditioned response, right? Which is going to be fear or something like that in this case, CER. So the conditioning looks distributed because what's happening is it doesn't matter what the task is, what this, the hippocampus does is it reactivates the same circuits that were firing when the animal was learning something. It makes some sense, doesn't it? Right? So every time, you know, if you remember, if you have a memory, what you're doing is reactivating the same parts of your brain that were active when you were learning. Okay? But the cool thing is, so this explains why it's distributed. And this explains why CR production is distributed because it's going to depend on what the form of the CS is and the US, etc. So it's always going to be distributed. But what they could do is shut this down and stop learning. Right? So what they were doing, in essence, was kind of like the, 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 the trick from Men in Black. Right? Just zap you with a light and you forget everything. The difference is we don't have these weird bioluminescing neurons in our hippocampus, so it's no big, no big deal. So... Conditioning is distributed, yes, but it seems like it's hippocampally mediated. I, this, this isn't on the slide because this came out last week. Now, it's early days with this stuff. One of the proteins that's um, expressed is called PKM zeta. And it seems like the expression of this protein is really important, especially in things like fear conditioning. Now, I don't know, in fact, if uh, they, used, they were looking at PKM zeta expression in the experiment I just talked about. But, in fact, you can give animals, after they've learned something, a PKM zeta inhibitor called, of all things, zip. And when you give animals zip, they forget negative things like CER, but they don't forget positive. It's pretty cool. We're getting there. It's going to come. It's going to come. I've been teaching learning since... When did I first teach learning? 1999. I think. First time I taught it. And I used to say, ah, we'll never know. <laughs> now, eh, we'll know. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Neuroscience rocks. So there's a reason we have distributed production and distributed all these distributed things, and that's because it looks like what, what's happening during learning and memory is that you're refiring circuits that were firing when you were learning something. We're very close to the point where you could take a pill, well, not that close, and forget bad things. Okay. That'd be okay. I'd be okay. I'd be, I'd be all for that. Had some tough times in my life. Now, some of them formed who I am. I'm okay with that. But some of them, it's like, 
I don't really have to remember that I stubbed my toe. <laughs> you know, I don't mean to, I don't want to forget that I hurt myself. But then, like, I don't want to get rid of the pain because you got it. Kind of reminds you. That, I mean, the part where you stub your toe and then you swear, you yell at your wife and children, you blame them, and you realize that was stupid. I didn't swear. <laughs> this doesn't help any. Then I just feel guilty. I'm sure you don't justify it. Different condition response, different brain regions. Again, now this fits with what I just said. We are. It looks like what's happening in learning is you get. Reproduction or refiring of the same areas that happened when you when you are uh, for for memory you get for learning. Dave? Yep. I don't, how does it target certain things like? How does what target certain the things? The zip thing. Like how oh, it's protein thing? expression. So the expression of that protein is what it seems is one of the things that's important in making the. Individual circuits fire that had fired before that were for okay. bad experiences. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, PKM zeta is a neuromodulator. Yeah. We know sometimes it's individual neurons doing the learning. We know this from aplasia. That it's changes in individual neurons, and it's probably got some changes in protein expression, and then, which eventually leads to changes in transmitter production. Right? So, what we have here is a really basic mechanism. And it's a mechanism that, at least in vertebrates, is hippocampally mediated, it seems. Um, this shouldn't surprise us how important hippocampus is. We know it's important for learning episodic, for episodic memory in humans. We know it's important for <clears throat> spatial memory in non-humans. You see a rat try to run the eight-arm radio maze that doesn't have a hippocampus. Oh, they try. They can run just fine. They just don't remember anywhere they've been. It's actually kind of sad watching them because you go, oh, you stupid rat. You're just down that arm. There's no food there. The interesting thing is, though, and this is, we know this especially as well, in, in, we know also in, in, in uh, when I say uh, vertebrates, because we know it's true, say, in a pigeon. So, fair enough. That said, I can ablate, remove, destroy, lesion, hippocampus, I don't know why I said that four different ways, uh, in a rat, and I can still do classical conditioning. The rat will still be classical conditioning. So yeah, PKM zeta, yeah, bioluminescence, yeah. Except that it doesn't seem to actually need hippocampus to learn. It seems like it's really an important part of learning. Because we know we can actually teach new associations to a rat that doesn't have a hippocampus. We know we can teach new associations to a human being that doesn't have a hippocampus. That's Brenda Miller found a great job. One of the first experiments, well, not experiments, first case study of a guy with Korsakoff syndrome who probably did have a messed up hippocampus. Uh, one of the first examples of what we like to call implicit learning in the literature was a French doctor named Cataret, and what he did is he walked up to a guy who had Korsakoff syndrome, so he had a whole lot of brain missing, um, replaced with you know, delicious drinks. And he, he poked this guy with a pin. You can't do stuff like this today, ethics. Damn ethics, they get in the way of science all the time. But he pokes the guy with the pin. And the next day, 
of course, guy, this, this, yeah, let's, let's, he's a French guy, let's call him Francois. I can't remember, I don't know why I had to give him a name. Um, couldn't remember Dr. Clepard's face, didn't even know who he was, but he went to shake his hand, he went, no, I don't think so. So he associated that guy with, that's unpleasant, I'm not going to touch him. He probably didn't have hippocampus because he couldn't form new episodic memories, this guy. He didn't say that back then. We know from the kids. We know that HM can form new, could, not anymore. He's dead. It's, he doesn't form any memories at all. Um, we know KC, KC Toronto, who, who uh, had a horrible motorcycle accident, doesn't have much hippocampus at all. Had a lot of temporal and frontal damage, too. He can still learn new stuff, learn new associations. So it isn't quite as simple as hippocampally mediated, that's it. Yeah, it's hippocampally mediated, but there's something else going on too. Is there a backup system? I don't know. I don't know. Whatever it is, it's a very basic mechanism. When I say basic, I mean pretty old and probably pretty simple. That evolution has built layers and layers of sort of redundancies on top of. That's sort of my guess. I don't know that anybody... I, will we know the answer? Yeah, yeah. I think probably in our lifetime. Would that uh, be related to neuroplasticity? Well, I mean, some neuroplasticity has become this sort of buzzword in the last like 10 years for reasons that really escape, kind of like how epigenetics has become a buzzword. Um, neuroplasticity just means change in the brain. And certainly, learning is an example of neuroplasticity. There's no argument there. Because um, there have to be changes in your brain to learn something. So, one part of the brain learning to do what the other part did. That's no oh, that kind of thing. So, I mean, you're talking about, like, for example, to use a different example, when someone has a stroke and they can't walk anymore, re- teaching them how to walk again, that kind yes. of thing. It could be, I mean, I think that learning is certainly an example of neuroplasticity. I don't think anybody would argue with that. Yeah. Uh, is it the case that HM and KC in these cases have learned a new way to learn? I don't think so, because HM showed normal learning right away. But he didn't remember anything. Like he couldn't have endo episodic memories. For the rest of her life, Brendan Miller you know, worked with him until he died, and she he never remembered who she was. But he, if her face was familiar to him eventually, eventually he'd say things like, did we go to school together, or have you been on TV or something? You seem familiar. But he had no idea who she was. And he worked, he, I think Brandon probably wrote 100 papers on that HM. So yeah, I, I don't think it's quite something that, uh, I don't think it's quite like that. And yeah, suddenly neuroplasticity in the last like, five, ten years has become like a buzzword. People are all excited about it. Hey, it's great stuff. So as, uh, like I said, epigenetics, everybody's all excited. Epigenetics, epigenetics. Yeah, I know. Why are you all excited? It's cool. Right? <laughs> Nobody ever goes around going, Pavlovian conditioning. <laughs> the very few people do. I love this stuff. Other questions? Sadly, while I love it, we will have to leave classical conditioning, the stuff I find interesting so far, and go into the stuff that I find so boring that I may nod off as I'm lecturing. <laughs> the nice thing is, oddly, the students seem to find Skinner's stuff, instrumental conditioning, a lot more interesting, a lot easier to understand than I do. So uh, I guess maybe you guys might have to keep me awake for a minute. Thanks, guys.
released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from garageband.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.